Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I'm honored uh, to be able to uh, stand in front of uh, your chosen people, your church, and to be able to present them with your word. I pray that I do it faithfully. I pray that um, as Paul called Timothy to do, that, that I work at sharing the good news of Christ, Lord, that uh, that I would not just grow lazy in my own studies, but that I would uh, that I would be chasing after you while calling others to chase after you, Lord. That, that I wouldn't call others to run this race and then show up short at the end. Uh, I pray now as we open up your Word uh, that you would move in us, Lord. If you don't, then we'll just stay where we are. Lord, but if you do, whoa, what an amazing thing to behold the hand of the almighty, sovereign God who is on his throne. Lord, that we would today forevermore be gaining a greater understanding of just how you reign. Lord, how you reign in this world, though oftentimes our worldly focused eyes cannot see how that could be the case, how you reign in heaven and how you will reign on high for eternity with your bride, the church. I thank you for Christ. Let him always be the focus of all that I do. It's in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be looking at the last three verses in chapter 6. And I'd ask y'all the last time to be uh, underlining some verses in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And in particular, I was asking you to underline uh, a couple of times the mentioning of one's lot in life. No matter how you're translation, how you find it, you're going to find that there's some mentioning of, uh, of a lot in life, okay? So this, at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 6, is, is really the closing of what's come before it, right? So we're, we're closing up what we've looked at, but there, I, wanted to, I wanted to treat this in its own time, give it its own kind of message because I think there's something in this passage of text that though the immediate context is to what we found over in uh, chapter 5 and through 6 up to this point, uh, I believe that there's, something, um, that there's something in this that if you've been paying attention as we've been going through Ecclesiastes, you may have noticed and as we continue through Ecclesiastes after this point, uh, I think you'll be sure to notice. Um, what I hope tonight that we see in God's Word is something, and, and, and I say it like this, when, when you see the sovereignty of God, you can't unsee the sovereignty of God. Once it, once it makes itself known to you in the studying of His Word, you start seeing it everywhere. And that's because it is everywhere, Right? So uh, tonight we're going to be dealing with uh, we're going to be dealing with God's sovereignty, um, and we're going to look at a couple of different places in the Scripture, and uh, we're going to ask a couple of questions. There's really three questions that we're going to ask. Um, I'll ask the first after uh, after we read ten through uh, twelve. I know that we've probably got a couple of different translations. Uh, floating around. I know NIV is popular, King James Version, New King James. Um, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. Um, I'm going to get Dennis. What do you have? Okay, so we've got the NIV. I'm going to read. Um, I've got about every other one that's probably popular. Um, and I'm going to read from all of them for verse 10 in particular because mine's going to read a particular way that, that's going to maybe sound a little bit different from 
the one that you, the one that you may be reading. And I want us to, I want us to see how these things link together. And, and the key to understanding this is, is really going to be understanding what's already been said, uh, prior in, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter five about accepting our lot in life. So, uh, let's read, um, verse 10 in the translation that I'm using here. It says, everything has already been decided. It was known long ago what each person would be. So there's no use arguing with God about your destiny. Eleven, more, the more words you speak, the less they mean. So what good are they? In the few days of our meaningless lives, who knows how our days can be best spent? Our lives are like shadows. Who can tell what will happen on this earth after we're gone. So I want to, um, mine reads, and the way that mine reads, um, there's a couple of words, and I, I, I want to say this too, before we get started, um, into what we're going to be talking about here today. Uh, there's a lot that can be said on this, okay? There's a lot that can be said on this, and there's a lots of questions that when we start, when we start uncovering God's sovereignty, there's a lot of questions that we're faced with. Okay, and we don't have time today to cover them all. Okay, so I'm in in preparing for this today. What I've tried to do is I've I've tried to give enough to start you questioning, because ultimately what I want is I want you to dig in yourself, right? So so today, if you're left with some questions, good. I want you to be asking some questions, right? I want you to be asking some questions. I want you to be digging for... I honestly want you to be digging for Scripture that you may think goes against what I'm saying, right? Like, I want us digging like this. I want us exploring for the truth because here's the thing that I absolutely 100% believe is I believe that the truth wins. When we seek, we find. When we knock, God opens the door for us. Right? So let's, let's at least find ourselves seeking, and let's at least find ourselves knocking. Right? Let's explore it a little bit. Okay? So I want to, I want to leave that, I want to put that out there, because what's possible that comes after this is labels get put on me, and those of you who've been in church for any amount of time, knowing what the sovereignty of God tends to lead to, you know what labels could get placed. And I want to go ahead and I want to go ahead and put out front that I don't, I know the label that you would try to put me under, and I don't fit there, right? And I don't fit on the other side either, okay? So I want you to understand that before you start labeling me. I think that there's two truths that show up in Scripture. I'm going to go ahead and put those out for you. I believe one truth is is that God reigns sovereign over everything. I believe that's unavoidable. I believe that's unavoidable. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Okay? I mean everything. I exclude nothing. God is sovereign over everything. Another truth that we find in Scripture is that you are responsible for the way that you live your life. An absolute truth that we find in Scripture is that God stands judging us. What does that mean? That the decisions you make matter. Right? So, those two truths. Now, as you explore these things further and further, what you're going to find is that oftentimes, if, if you're like me, you're going to find many times more questions than you think you've found answers. Right? Let's dig and keep digging. It's a, it's a, fun, it's a fun thing. Right? God's truth, I believe, wins out. So everything is already, everything has already been decided. Let's pull up NIVs, what we got back there. So pull up the NIV and I'll pull up King James and King James says, that which has been is named already. Now, the, the word named here, that's translated named, if you go and look in Genesis, you're gonna find the same word being translated called, right? So God, called the sun, right? God called the moon, right? So God called the light, God 
So, so this, this idea, this word here that we find as named is essentially God calling it something. Right? So here's what, here's what we see here. That which hath been. This is King James. Uh, NIV is gonna say, um, whatever exists has already been named. Right? Whatever exists has already been named. NASB says whatever exists has already been named. RSV, whatever has come to be has already been named. HCSB, whatever exists was given its name long ago. What are these, what does this idea mean? What does it mean? That, that the things that have been have been called or named Long ago. What, is, what does that mean? I want you to be thinking about that. I want you to dig into that. I want you, when I say what I say today, I don't want you to say, well, Landon's read it in a particular version. I read it in every single one of them you will probably come across. Right? So just follow with me. Everything in this translation, everything has already been decided. It was known long ago. This is the second sentence in in the version that I have, it was known long ago what each person would be. King James here says, and it is known that it is man. And I actually like the King James and the RSV and the way that it renders this second portion. And it is, RSV says, and it is known what man is. Right? The word here that's translated man is Adam, right? This is this this is the word that represents mankind. This is the name that was given to the first man, Adam, right? So, and it is known what man is. This is going to be important in a second because we're going to read down again into. Uh, verse uh, 12, and I'm going to ask you some questions. Uh, the next part of this, and mine says, so there's no use arguing with God about your destiny, though I think that that gets the point across here. I also, again, prefer uh, ESV, RSV's rendering of this. And they, so King James renders the last portion like this. Neither may he contend with him that's mightier than he. Who is mightier than he? Who is it referring to here that is mightier than man? Or mightier than mankind? Who, who is it that it's referring to here? God. And, and that's easily seen when we go back over into Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and look at verse 18, 19. It says, even so, I've noticed one thing at least that is good, it is, that is good. It is good for people to eat, drink, and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life. God has given them and to accept their lot in life. Who has given them life? And who's given them their lot in life? God, okay? And it is a good thing to receive wealth from God. To receive wealth from who? God. And it is a good thing to enjoy it. To enjoy your work and to accept your lot in life. Indeed, it, or this is indeed a gift from who? From God. Right? So this idea pushing over into the end of chapter 6 here. It's God that's giving life. It's God that's setting the lot. And the question here that's being asked, who could contend with the one who's mightier than he? So in the context of the text that we're looking at here, the question would be, is according to your lot in life, who among us could question God as to our lot in life? Who could stand to contend with the one who is mightier? In, and, and, and I think that the question is asked rhetorically, because I think what we should answer immediately is no one. And, and, and I want to ask you this. Were you involved in the conversation that came about to determine whether or not you would live in this generation or the generation prior? Or 200 years ago? Who has determined the day of your birth? Right. God alone has determined the day of your birth. 
God alone has set your lot in life. Why? And for what reason? His glory, awesome. It's absolutely His glory. And I want you to think about this. Could He fail in His purposes? Could God fail in His purposes? And here immediately there should be questions that are triggering off in your head. Okay? When, who, who says no, God could not fail in His purposes? I'm going to go ahead and throw the, the, the questions that you should be answering or asking out the window. I'm going to put them out there for you. First I want to see, raising your hands, who thinks God could not fail? If He is God... Who thinks that he could not fail in his purposes? Right? Who, who, who thinks that he... And this is not a trick question, so just answer how you feel like you should answer. Hey, who thinks God could fail in his purposes? Who, who, who thinks that? So I want to go ahead and put out there for you the question that you should ask. Why is anyone lost? That's the question that you should ask yourself. If God could not fail in his purposes, then why... Would anyone go to hell? That's the hard one. Okay? So I'm going to go ahead and preempt you in this. You raise your hand, God's sovereign over everything. Yet, evil exists. For what purpose? For what purpose? We are going to go over to Job. This is, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. Alright? So there's some things that I want us to learn from Job here in regards to God's sovereignty over everything. Flip to Job and, and again read all the book. Right? Uh, we don't have time to read it all here. Right now at least. So Job chapter one, verse six. One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before God, and the accuser Satan came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. So one thing that I want to point out right up front, is that Satan, when God calls, must come and answer to him. Do you see this? If I'm Satan, if I'm Satan and I'm really, I can do whatever I want to do, God's like, come here, Satan. I'm like, no, I'm going to go this way. But what do we find? One day the members of heaven's court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser Satan came with them. Where have you been? He's at, God asks him, where have you been? I mean, he knows, but he's presenting this question here to Satan. Satan answers, the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. And the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? And do you see what God just did there? Do you see what He just did there? Do you see the bus that Job just got rolled under and who rolled him under that bus? Do you see that? That it is God who asked the question to Satan. Have you noticed my servant Job? Have you noticed my servant Job? And then we see the trials that go on, right? And he gets worse trials than any of us would ever hope for or would ever want to look forward to in our lives. Verse 10 of chapter 2. Actually, we're going to look at verse 9 of chapter 2. So who does the, who does the tormenting? Who does the destroying? Who does the the massive amount of destruction that goes on in Job's life. Who? Satan. And let's see what Job says when his wife says what she says. Verse 9 of chapter 2. His wife said to him, Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die? Verse 10, But Job replied, You talk like a foolish woman. Shouldn't we accept should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? Who is he accounting what's come to him to? 
The good and the bad comes from whose hand here? The last part of that. So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. And some say it a little more stronger. It says Job did not sin in what he said. So what does that tell us about what Job replied there to his wife? That it was true statement. Is God sovereign? Does God reign? Can His purposes fail? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Now I want us to look in Ecclesiastes. This is, these, these ideas have been there all along, kind of under your, under, right under your nose if you've been here studying with us in this. So I'm gonna, this is gonna be shotgun protocol. I don't know if Dennis will be able to follow fast enough. Um, Dennis is recording this. I'll put it online. If you want to follow up afterwards, um, it'll be on my Facebook so you can catch all of these and double check. Alright? So, first place we're gonna look. Ecclesiastes 1, the middle part of verse 13. Soon I discovered that God had dealt a tragic existence to the human race. God had dealt. We're not gonna dig into all of these. I just want to point these things out to you. Uh, Ecclesiastes 2, we're gonna look at so what comes from God in that one? Tragic existence. Verse 24 of chapter 2, the, the second sentence in that. Then I realized that these pleasures are from God. So we see in chapter 1, tragedy, or, or we see tragic existence. We also see pleasure. So, so the good, the bad from God. Verse 26, God gives wisdom, knowledge, joy, to those who please Him. So He gives. But if a sinner becomes wealthy, God takes. So God both gives and takes. Later on in chapter 3, verse 10, I have seen the burden God has placed on us. God places burden. Verse 11, Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. God is what makes anything beautiful at all. Levin also reads, he's planted eternity in the human heart. So our ideas about life beyond the grave come from Him. And in all of these things that we're looking at, what we should be asking, the question we should be asking ourselves is why? For what purpose? For what reason would God do both all of these things. Why would He do them or allow them or what have you? Why would He call Job out? What's the purpose in that? Verse 14, And I know that whatever God does is final. This is 14 to chapter 3. And I know that whatever God does is final. Nothing can be added to it or taken away from it. God's purpose is that people should fear Him. A little little further down, verse 15, the last part of verse 15 there says, God makes the same things happen over and over again. In 16 there, it says, In due season God will judge everyone, both the good and the bad, for their deeds. So God stands as judge. And what you'll notice in all of this is I'm looking, we're talking about things under sun in Ecclesiastes, but he can't help but drop God's name in there anyways. And we're looking in this and in the places that he's dropping God's name so that we see in what he's saying here, uh, what he's saying here and revealing here about God and about the purposes, uh, that he has. So verse 18, the second sentence in verse 18, God proves to people that they are like animals. So it's God doing that. Uh, f- 5 and 18 and 19 and 20, we looked at that earlier. We'll jump past it. Uh, last time we were in chapter 6, so this shouldn't be too unfamiliar to you. God gives some people great wealth and honor and everything they could ever want, but He doesn't give them the chance to enjoy these things. So we see in 5, in chapter 5, that God gives health, that God gives wealth, and in chapter 6 we, we see that, that for some God takes that away. And then we arrive at 10, where we're at 
today, but I want us to jump past it. I want us to go ahead and get a preview of all the times that we see this in the rest of Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 13 says, Accept the way God does things, for who can straighten what He has made crooked? In chapter 8, verse 15, the last half of the last sentence says, uh, we'll just read the last sentence of, of, uh, of chapter 8, verse 15. It says, that they will experience some happiness along with the hard work God gives them under the sun. God gives hard work. 17 of that same chapter, I realize that no one can discover everything God is doing under the sun. Not even the wisest people can discover everything, no matter what they claim. So a truth that we see in this is that God's ways are literally beyond our searching out. Right? Right? So that we come head on with these things and find ourselves asking questions... If we had every single one of the answers, that's when we should be questioning. Right? No, not even the wisest people could discover everything, no matter what they claim. So if anybody ever comes to you claiming that they've got all of these things sealed up, locked up, they understand God 100% fully and completely, you better go running and don't put money in their offering plate. And don't give money to their charities. <laughs> They're probably swindling that away, trying to live under the sun, whatever kind of life they want to live. Alright, chapter 9, verse 1, this too I carefully explored. Even though the actions of godly and wise people are in God's hands, no one knows whether God will show them favor. So, favor is from the Lord. It is His decision if He decides to show it or not. And it also says that the actions of godly and wise are in the hands of God. Verse 9, we see that the meaningless days of life, God has given us the last part of 9 there. The wife God gives you is your reward for an earthly toil. So our significant others are given to us by God. Go over to chapter 11, verse 5. Just as you cannot understand the path of the wind or the mystery of a tiny baby growing in its mother's wombs, so you cannot understand the activity of God who does all things. Verse 9 of chapter 11, the last sentence says, But remember that you must give account to God for everything that you do. God's the judge. Our actions matter. Chapter 12, verse 7. For then the dust will return to earth and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Who gave it? God gave it. Who placed it? God placed it. Where did He place it? Where He wanted it. Why? For His purpose. Alright, are y'all following with me here? He ends the book of Ecclesiastes with this, Fear God and obey His commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. And we're going to spend some time on that whenever we get to it later. But the fact that He ends the book with this, and the fact that we have an understanding of just how evil we are, that should scare us to death. That should leave us looking for something, right? So the, the question that I want us to ask here is going to correspond to the idea of destiny. We're going to look at two aspects of this. I want us to reread, now that we've looked at all these cases and see all these things that we see God reigning over, I want us to reread 10, 11, and 12 of Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Everything has already been decided. It was known long ago what each person would be. So there's no use arguing with God about your destiny. The more words you speak, the less they mean. So what good are they? In the few days of our meaningless lives, who knows how our days can best be spent? 
Our lives are like shadows. Remember that. We're going to touch on that again. Who can tell what ha- what will happen on this earth after we are gone? As I'm studying this and and spending time digging into this uh, this text, trying to figure out just exactly what to say, because like I say, there's a, we could spend we could spend countless hours in discussion on this, right? But what I want us to do is I want us to look at two aspects of God's sovereignty and God's reign and how that plays out with the idea that our lives are like a shadow, right? So we're going to look at the sovereignty of God and that how that plays out in respect to our lives being like a shadow. So what I want to ask you to think about is what is a shadow, Y'all can answer back if you if you feel like you got a good answer for it. What is a shadow? Can you tell me anything about shadows? It's what? It's a fading image. How do shadows come about? I hear I hear a couple. Raise your hands. So there's a light shining on something. And then a shadow is cast. Is this the basic understanding everybody has of I'm standing here and I see a shadow and that shadow is because the light is coming, it's hitting, and there's some of the light that hits me and doesn't make it to the floor, therefore there is a shadow. So there's a source of light, there's an object being struck, and there's a shadow that's being cast from that object. Follow me? You follow me this far? So a couple questions. We're not the object being struck. Clear? Clear? We're also not the light source. What are we? We're the shadow that's being cast. So the question that I have, what is the light source? God, this is good. And specifically, I think... The knowledge and understanding of the truth of God's Word casts a lot. And we, we find two things that that lot strikes against. And I, will, I want you to go and I want you to read Romans chapter 5 also. There's some language in Romans chapter 5 that is going to make sense of what I'm going to say in the next couple of minutes. In Romans chapter 5, Paul speaks of the first Adam and the second Adam. Y'all follow me on that? Have y'all read that part before? So who's the first Adam? Adam. So what about the second Adam guy? Who is that? That's Christ, right? Why does he use this language in Romans chapter 5? What's kind of the reasoning behind that? He's contrasting the two, right? He's showing the ways in which the first Adam failed, And in comparison, how the second Adam, namely Christ, has succeeded. Right? So I want to, I want to propose to you that your life is a shadow cast from one of two places. From man? From Adam? That word that's translated in some of yours, man, and is translated in mine, person, or each person. Right? That Adam, that, that you're either the shadow cast from that, and what does that shadow look like? Sin? And what of the shadow at the end of the day when the light shines? Vanity of vanities. Right? Vanity of vanities. There's a, there's a second thing that could cast a shadow if we follow along with the the kind of wording that's used in Romans chapter 5 we'll we'll talk about the second Adam we could be found in the second Adam and that is the only way in which our lives are not going to be vanity of vanities and God is sovereign over all of this Okay? God is sovereign over all of this. I want us to look at the, the two ways in which God's sovereign. 
Oftentimes when we run into the sovereignty of God, we find ourselves at any place that it seems to come in contact with our supposed freedom, we, we reject it in that area. Right? That's what we, that's what we tend to, to do. Right? Anytime God's sovereignty encroaches on me and what I think I can or cannot do, I'm pushing the sovereignty of God off. Or so I think. Alright? Or so I think. So we're gonna, we're gonna spend a little bit of time looking at the two Adams and seeing what our destinies are if we're in one or the other. And then if you were to find yourself in the first Adam tonight, I'm gonna call you by the reading of God's Word and the prayer that God's Spirit would move in your hearts, you would move from darkness to light. Right? So I want us to look first, and this is a favorite verse of mine. We're going to look first in Romans, surprise, surprise, chapter 8. We're going to look at verse 28 and the verses that follow it. For those who find themselves in the shadow of Christ, what of our destinies? What do we have to look forward to? Where does our hope lie? And who does our hope lie? And what does that look like? And what is that based and founded in? It's the sovereignty of God. I want, I want to put that out. Go ahead and put that out there for you. You're going to see that. So in both of the passages of Scripture that we're going to look at in the New Testament, you're going to see the sovereignty of God interwoven into this. Right? You're going to see it. And once you see it, I'm telling you, you cannot unsee it. Verse 28 of chapter 8, and we could go on, and I'm, I'm preached from 8 and 18, and all of this ties in together. I wish we had a couple, ten hours to really dig through this whole thing. <laughs> Y'all are getting nervous now, but my cup's almost empty, so <laughs> you're safe. Verse 28 of chapter 8, And we know, how do we know is the question. And we know that God calls us. And we know that God causes. Causes what? And we know that God causes everything. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to what? To His purpose for them. So if you're in the shadow of the second Adam, you're not in the shadow of the second Adam to chase after the same things that you were chasing after under the shadow of the first. You follow me? God's purposes. He's got purpose for you, Christian. So let that cast away any doubt in your heart on your service to Him. He has purpose for you. He has not called you to sit by and do nothing. And do you want to know another truth that I believe about this? Is I don't think you can. I think that if you are His, you will move. I believe that. Sometimes I believe that it happens because you were studying your word when you're at your house. Sometimes I think it happens because you came to church and maybe you weren't intending on hearing what you were going to hear. God's purposes working out in everything. In everything, believer. In everything. He has purpose for you. If you find yourself as a believer asking yourself the question, what is my purpose in life? Do I have a purpose in life? God has a purpose for you. You want to find value, meaning, worth, find it in His purposes. And you know what you can know in that is they will not fail. 
They will not fail. Look at the history of the church. The world would see a whole lot of failing. Especially when people are being martyred or being killed or being eaten by cannibals or being fed by fed to dogs, lions, burnt to death on the stake. To the world's eyes, it looks like failure. But you know what? In the midst of the harshest persecutions, that's when he's seen. It's in the middle of the fire that they say there's one that looks like this. The Son of God. The Son of Man. So when he's the clearest saying. So don't think either that just because you're enduring trials or troubles that God's purposes are not playing out. Because for the Christian, all those things in Ecclesiastes that would look bad, that would look hard, shortened lifetimes, wealth being taken away, those things look bad. I want to tell you that God has a purpose in it for you. That nothing happens that's not... God working for your good. That's what this Scripture tells us. Why can we know that that's true? Because we know, and we know without a shadow of a doubt, that God reigns over everything. He reigns over everything. When He calls, Satan comes. He cannot resist Him. continue on because it gets better and better and better for this is verse 29 chapter 8 Romans for God knew his people in advance church he's known you he's been working from eternity past to here because he's known you he set his heart on you he's fixed his eyes on you believer and he is working his purposes out you play into that And He chose them to become like His Son. What's the purpose? What's God's purpose? To make you, believer, like Christ. The refining fire will not melt you away. One day, the fire will die out in glory. Glory. Let's continue on reading. If you don't believe me, we'll see it. For God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to become like His Son. There's a purpose in what He's doing. He's making us like Christ. It's for His glory. He's lifting up the Son. The Son is lifting up the Father. Verse 29 there, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Having chosen them, he called them to come to him. He called you. He called you. He called you. Do you, do you understand that? Do you? I think so many times we we walk through our Christian lives and we 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 feel beat down. We feel like maybe things aren't going away. Maybe God's not. Maybe He's unhappy with me today. Like He didn't have His eyes set on you for all eternity. He's un, He's unhappy with you. He spared not His Son for you. He's unhappy with you. You're in Christ. You're in Christ. His purposes are working out. They will not fail. And that's the hope for all we have here. And having chosen them, He called them to come to Him. And having called them, He gave them right standing with Himself, something that we had no hope for. And at the close of Ecclesiastes, that will be more and more evident. He gave us right standing. And having given them right standing... He gave them His glory. And, and not one part of that, because you worked a little harder for it. Not one part of that, because you were owed it, or deserved it. Not one part. Not one part. His eyes were fixed on you. 
He called you. He gave you right standing. He gave you His glory. Let us be humbled in that. Let us absolutely Christian. This should humble us. This should bring us to our knees. And when we're on our knees, we should respond like this. And I'm going to read a little bit more text than I'd anticipated on reading. Let's go ahead in chapter 30, or in chapter uh, 8, verse 31. Let me get a drink of water because this is a long run of text here. With this hope, all backed on the fact that God reigns, that God is sovereign, this is, this is the outpouring of the heart, right? This is for those who live in the second Adam. In the shadow of the second Adam. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Who can contend with the one who is mightier than he? Verse 32, since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Let that, if you doubt If you ever find yourself doubting God's commitment to you, if you ever find yourself questioning the character of God, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, let that Scripture be written on your heart. Since He did not spare even His only Son, what more could He give you to show you how much He loves you, church? What more? What more could He give you? Nothing more. Verse 33, so from this, since He spared no expense for us, who dares accuse us from whom God has chosen for His own? No one. That's the answer. No one. For God Himself has given us right standing with Himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. The answer is no one here. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. So then the question, can anything separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecuted or hungry or destitute or in, ang- or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. no. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Verse 38, and I am convinced. What convinces you? Do you know what convinces me? Is that I believe that God reigns supremely above everything. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life. Neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'll probably read that passage of text to you a hundred thousand times if I live long enough. That passage of text is the most amazing promise for the Christian. It is the most amazing promise for the Christian. But what if you find yourself in the first Adam? What then? And this is another place where I would say we could step back and we could have conversation after conversation. And I've already given you the hardest question, at least in my mind, at the beginning. But I I don't want us to end there. I want us to look at what the men who preached these words, who wrote these words, when they preached the Gospel, I want to see how they preached. So we're going to turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to end here, so... This is for the one who may be in the first Adam.
We're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 14. I want to, I want to, I want to pray before we do. Lord God, Sovereign of all creation, will you, will you move among us? Will you move among your people? Will you do something? Lord, when when your word is preached, Lord, will it return to you void? No. No, it will not. Because your purposes cannot fail. Your ways are higher than our ways. The glory of which we are undeserving to behold. Lord, if there is one among us tonight who finds themselves swallowed up in vanity of vanities, in meaningless, meaningless life. Lord, I pray that you would call them from darkness to light. Lord, I pray that you would quiet my heart. So that your purposes could be fulfilled. It's in Christ's name. Amen. So how did these men preach? How did they preach? What did they preach? What did they say? Here we find men who days before were running, hiding, who had lost All hope. Because even then, their eyes were fixed on worldly things. Though they were following Him, they saw not what was coming. But, God's purposes do not fail. They do not fail. And He sent to the church a spirit that does not make us fearful slaves but that welcomes us in as adopted children and after receiving this spirit Peter steps forward to preach God's word and this is what he says then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd listen carefully All of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you has assumed. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will will dream dreams. In those days I will pour out my Spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy, and I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark. The moon will turn blood red before the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed 
Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders and signs through Him as you well know. But God knew what would happen and His prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. Whose plan? Whose plan? Whose plan? His plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed Him to a cross and killed Him. I want you to see how God has woven together His plan and our responsibilities, our actions. Whose plan? Whose plan? God's prearranged plan, and it was carried out when? When Jesus was betrayed? With the help of the lawless Gentiles, who nailed Him? You nailed Him! God's plan. You nailed Him. Do you reckon it was sinful when they nailed Him to the cross? You you reckon driving the nails into the hands of God Himself was a sinful act? So you're, you're telling me then that the most sinful and heinous act ever imaginable was perpetrated... In accordance to God's prearranged plan. And you're guilty because you nailed him to a cross and killed him. Verse 24. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grips. David said this about him. And I see the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for He is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts praises. My body rests in hope, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David was not referring to himself, for he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet, and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on the throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. Verse 32, God raised Jesus from the dead and we are witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit. To pour out upon us. Just as you see here today. For David himself. Never ascended into heaven. Yet he said. The Lord said to my Lord. Sit in the place of honor. At my right hand. Until I humble your enemies. Making them a footstool. Under your feet. Let that be. Terrifying. To you. Because if you are in the first Adam. You are the enemy because you've made yourself the enemy. Verse 36, So, let everyone in Israel know for certain that God made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Verse 37, Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, What should we do? So if you find yourself in the shadow of the first Adam, if you find yourself in sin, and you're asking yourself the question, what must I do? It can be said no plainer. Verse 38, Jesus replied, each of you, Peter replied, each of you, must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then 
you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you and to your children and even to the Gentiles, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that is found within these pages that we would not neglect your word. That we would not set it aside as though it is something outdated. Something that cannot apply to us. But let us us open it. Lord, that we may see you working in us. That we may see your purposes being played out in our lives, in the lives of our church members, our church family. Lord, that you would move in us. Lord, that you would move in the heart of those who do not yet know that you have a purpose for them. It is in Christ. It is for His glory. Repent. Believe. Christian, continue repenting and believing. Lost person, repent. Believe. Be baptized. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit.